Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, and we're going to be talking a lot about teachers and uh, teacher training and Mr. Tudge and Mr. Morrison. And also, we get, if we have time, we might just get across to America for a very interesting article on the Diane Ravitch blog. And, of course, Maddie has her great state school for us. A very interesting school it is, too. So we've got our press release 888, Alan Tudge and Teacher Training Review. The government by deniability, not accountability. In the last year, our public school teachers have excelled in acquiring a host of new professional and practical skills. And in the pandemic frontline, because they, like the nurses, have been in the frontline, they have been keeping the majority of Australian children educated online. Their contribution to the welfare of Australian families, not just our children, but to Australian families, and the national welfare, our future, cannot be underestimated. And they have done this on salaries, which in comparison with other professions and corporate administrators are derisory. Now, in the last week, the teachers and their children returned to public schools, which are being systematically underfunded by both federal and state governments, while the private sector is overfunded as the system of choice for the wealthy and the lib-lab politicians themselves. This has been revealed in all its stark reality by Trevor Cobald in a further chapter on the abandonment of the needs-based funding and massive increase for private schools by the Morrison government. His latest chapter is entitled Morrison Abandons Needs-Based Funding. Chris Bonner has, rejected, has reacted specifically to the Minister Tudge's announcement of a review of teacher training in a very interesting article on John Menadue's blog, Pearls and Irritations, entitled Tudge on the Bludge. What has been the reward for our marvellous public school teachers who have kept our education systems afloat then? Without their efforts, we're arguing the international results would have declined even further than they have already with glaring underfunding. Alan Tudge, the latest Minister for Education in the Ministerial Musical Chairs of the Morrison Cabinet, has rewarded our teachers with an announcement that the government will focus on improving teacher quality to help achieve its ambitious goal of returning Australian students to the top of international rankings in readings, maths and science. I think he's also using a date, 2030. So Tudge has appointed a panel of education experts to conduct a six-month review of initial teacher training courses, which he said was the most critical element in arresting declining academic standards. Now, this announcement in the Sydney Morning Herald and a rejoinder from a researcher from the Grattan Institute Julia Sunderman, that the minister would have to pay teachers more if he was going to entice high achievers into teaching, elicited many, many comments. 
And some of the comments were, well, they speak for themselves, don't they? So we think it would be best to let a few teachers speak for themselves and Dale as is going to uh, tell you what they had to say. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Lindy B says, once again, a Tory government blames the teachers for their own shortfalls. Then JAL says, every time there's an issue in Australian society, the solution is for it to be tackled in schools. For example, consent, respect, communication and intimacy as currently being played out in the media. Many schools already teach the Respectful Relationships Program and are being called on to extend that. Schools also need to teach mindfulness, help-seeking, resilience, cyber-safety, financial literacy, and so on, as there, are, as there are perceived gaps in what young people are being equipped with. These demands have only increased in the 20 years I have been teaching and make it very tricky to have enough time to teach literacy and numeracy and other fundamental skills as well as manage the increasing mandated admin load. There's only so much teachers and schools can do. Then Bruce says, Falling standards appear to coincide with massive increases in the federal government's private school pool-building policy and other divisive tactics they have used to create an education market. The LNP states play the same game with prefabs at the other end of the equation. Perhaps we could make education a politician-free zone and let teachers teach in good conditions for students to learn in. The LNP are about entrenching a sense of entitlement, not education. And then Grumpy On says, It's always the teachers. The Liberal Party plan is not to improve education outcomes or achieve equality of opportunity. Quite the reverse. The Liberal Party seeks to do harm to public school teachers because they are public school teachers and because they are in a union. Harming teachers harms the union and in turn harms the ALP without any consideration of the effects on, on the education of our children. And why is the federal education minister sticking his nose into a state responsibility? The feds do not own, operate or directly fund a single school. They do not employ teachers. In fact, they have no personal experience of public education. And a little bit of what Steve M says, maybe we should be putting more money into public education to provide better infrastructure and facilities. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, there was a very interesting one that I, I, I thought brought back some of the dog's history too, because although people think that the Labor Party is better for the public system. That's not necessarily the case, and it hasn't always been necessarily the case. The Labor Party are very good at selling out the unions, the strong union people, as we found out in the 1980s with Mr Hawke and company. So this is a very interesting one. A teacher going back to the 1990s when Victorian teachers were sold out by the Labor government under Turner and the Liberal Premier Kennett. Dad 55 writes, I taught in the Victorian government education system starting 1978 and retiring in 2016, except for three years in the private system in the early 2000s. 
The expectations, demands and pressure experienced in the latter part of my career was greater in those years than in the earlier years, except naturally for my first year as a teacher. In my experience as a secondary school maths teacher, during the beginning years up until 1992, class sizes were comparatively small and I taught 21 periods a week. I had time to prepare thoroughly and to engage in informal discussions with sometimes older teachers and sometimes with teachers of my own vintage. Those informal discussions were incredibly valuable in providing advice, ideas and moral support. Then what happened in 1992? Our union, and that was the VSTA in those days, blinked. They agreed to worsen our conditions in the Conditions Agreement for 1992 by increasing the teaching load by one period per week. We were assured that this was going to only be for one year, only to help the Kerner government balance the books. Remember, the Kerner government got into trouble with the State Bank and it had to be Kerner who was prepared to sell it. Kane wouldn't. Well. Kerner lost that election and Kenneth came into power at the end of 1992 and the increased teaching load remained. And, of course, we lost a lot of schools too. And there was less time for those all-important informal discussions. And that was the thin end of the wedge. Time was now given out for whole-of-school curriculum development or KLA based on sessions. The less said about those, the better, as they were often run by people with a particular barrow to push, so therefore lacked in relevance to individual teachers. They were full of buzzwords. The staffing formula then was tightened, forcing up class sizes. They didn't want to pay teachers here in Victoria. Mr Kennett brought in someone from, up, up, uh, from, from Darwin to do a razor gang job. To push down class sizes, some smart bunny administrators found that by stating that classes were not 50 minutes in length, but actually 48 minutes in length, teachers take time walking between classrooms, teachers could be given 23 lessons a week that still fit within the face-to-face -face teaching time per week that appeared in the conditions agreement, loophole. So now they were teaching two extra periods a week because their union had given up in 1992 to Kerner. More demands came from the powers that be from parents, developing performance plans and going through an annual review. All I needed for a performance plan should have been, I will be fully prepared for each lesson, correct work promptly and give clear feedback on assessed work. But that was never enough. Personalised learning was the last trend statement I had to deal with. I've asked students who had parents who were teachers if they were going to follow in the footsteps and the response was always, no way. I've seen the pressure my mum and dad has been under, no way. It's not one thing that is at issue. It's a million little things. Comparatively good pay at the start that just stalls. No progression unless you want to do less teaching and more other stuff. Limited opportunities to get into the senior teacher principal types position. Increasing demands with less time and less support. 
And there's a high percentage of teachers who seek a chance of career, a change of career, I'm sorry, within the first five years. I found that a very interesting letter indeed, because it points out how teachers have again and again and again been sold down the river. And it's mainly by the politicians, but sometimes it has been by their own union who are members of the Labor Party. And that's what happened, and he's told you about back in 1992. And I remember it clearly. Remember those days very clearly indeed. We'll have a bit of a break now and we'll come back and uh, Oliver is going to give you the report about what Mr Tudge actually said. And then Maddie and Sorrel are going to tell us uh, what Trevor Cobalt has been up to. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. is 3CR 8.55 on the AM dial and you're listening to the Dogs Program. And this is a program mainly about teachers. And uh, Oliver's now going to tell us about a report that was in the Sydney Morning Herald about Mr Pudge. Thank you, Jean. Lisa Vicentin writes, the Morrison government will focus on improving teacher quality to help achieve its ambitious goal of returning Australian students to the top of international rankings in reading, maths and science. Education Minister Alan Tudge has appointed a panel of education experts to conduct a six-month review of initial teacher education courses, which he said was the most critical element in arresting declining academic standards. The review, which Mr Tudge will launch on Thursday, will be chaired by former Department of Education Secretary Lisa Paul. It will look at how to attract talented people into the profession and best prepare them to become effective teachers. The recommendations of this review will help ensure that we attract high quality, motivated candidates into teaching and develop them into teachers with the skills our students need, Mr Tudge said. I've heard that so often before, haven't you? How often have we heard it? If they're not going to pay people properly, they're not going to give them scholarships to university if they can't afford it, uh, then they're not going to attract young people who um, are thinking of a career. They're just not going to do it. No, they need the proper motivation. She goes on to write, we want the finest students choosing to be teachers and we also want to make it easier for accomplished mid and late career individuals to transition into the profession, bringing their extensive skills and knowledge into our school classrooms. Mr Tudge last month set a target of returning Australia to the top performing group of nations in academic performance by 2030. Since the early 2000s, Australian students have tumbled down in the rankings in the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, which tests 15-year-olds in reading, maths and science across more than 70 countries every three years. 
Australian students recorded their worst result on record in the 2018 PISA, failing for the first time to exceed the OECD average in maths, while declining in reading and science. University of Sydney academic Rachel Wilson, an expert in education program evaluation, said reviewing teacher education in isolation was not enough and a whole, whole of system review was needed. Tinkering isn't going to fix it. We need a broader review and bolder reforms to the structures of the schooling system. We need a cross-party coalition and 10-year plan to address the issues we're facing, Associate Professor Wilson said. Well, perhaps they could start with funding disadvantaged schools properly. Perhaps they could think about taking the money away from the wealthy schools and perhaps they actually might go back to the 1950s and 60s and understand that we won't lead the world unless we do away with state aid to private schools like Finland does. That would be a nice change to see. Michelle Simmons, president of the Australian Council of Deans of Education, said the latest review had merit, despite teacher education being scrutinised in numerous past reviews. But she proposed expanding the remit beyond initial teacher training covering undergraduate and postgraduate education qualifications to the broader teaching profession. We actually need to look at things like providing quality professional learning for all teachers, regardless of their stage of career, rather than just concentrating on graduate teachers, which makes up a very small portion of the overall teaching workforce, Professor Simmons said. Back to you, Jean. Well, uh, that's very interesting too. Teachers, of course, have to uh, both, both be rewarded and Mr Tudge has just uh, given them a bit of a kick up whatever, hasn't he, by saying, well, uh, our teachers aren't doing a good enough job because we're falling behind. But it isn't the fault of the teachers and certainly not the fault of the teachers in the public schools. They have not been adequately funded. And now we'll have um, Maddie and Sorrel to tell us what Trevor Cobalt has been up to. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jane. Yes, Cobalt has uh, written a very interesting article that I have the pleasure of reading, and it's entitled Morrison Abandons Needs-Based Funding. He says, despite their initial opposition to the Gonski funding model, successive coalition governments have been forced to retain its basic features. Namely, the base SRS and the needs-based funding loadings for various categories of, dis of disadvantaged students and schools. However, they have succeeded in destroying the model. The Abbott government ditched the large funding increase for 2018 and 2019 that was planned under the original model, an increase that would have mainly benefited public schools. The Turnbull government abandoned the national approach to funding and reverted to the long-standing division of responsibilities for funding public and private schools, with the Commonwealth having primary responsibility for private schools and the states having primary responsibility for public schools. The Morrison government completed the demolition. It engineered a huge funding boost for private schools by adopting a highly flawed method of determining the, their financial need by increased funding outside the basic model that was not based on need. And public schools were denied a similar increase. Indeed, the government conspired with state governments to massively defraud public schools by allowing them to claim expenditures not included in the measure of the SRS as part of their target share. 
Morrison dismissed the needs of public schools as a matter for state governments, saying that <clears throat> state governments are the principal funders of state schools. While the Commonwealth has always been the principal funder of non-government schools. It continues the coalition's long tradition of guaranteed funding for private schools and no guarantees for public schools. The Morrison government has fulfilled what Tony Abbott called the Liberal Party's proud history of funding independent and Catholic schools to protect them and ensure they continue to flourish. The government has effectively dismissed the needs of disadvantaged students because the vast majority attend public schools. In 2019, public schools enrolled 80% or more of disadvantaged students. I'm going to go through a few figures now. So 80% um, with low SES, 84% were Indigenous, 86% had extensive disabilities and 82% um, were remote area students. Also, over 90% of the most disadvantaged schools are public schools. Yet public schools are destined to receive a much smaller increase in funding to 2029 than private schools and will remain vastly underfunded. Choice is more important than equity in education for the Morrison government. It unashamedly reaffirmed the Howard era mantra of school choice as its policy priority. Support for parent choice was a key justification for the funding boost for private schools. The government's media release announcing its peace deal with the Catholic Church was headed more choice for Australian families. Ugh. Yes, this, this, this choice um, ideology, because it is an ideology, in, in actually deals with choice for certain kinds of parents. Mm. Uh, who have the um, view that they are entitled, whether they are on the best highway to heaven or the best highway to the good job, or both. But um, it doesn't deal with choice for children, and it is the children that the education is about. All throughout the world, particularly those countries which have this ideology of choice in education, are developing glaring inequalities in both their education and social systems. And this, of course, leads eventually to, um, well, revolution or certainly a lot of um, instability, uh, both economically and politically. That choice is breeding entitlement all, all across Australia. So in the joint media conference on the funding announcement, Morrison said, we believe in choice in education we believe Australian parents should have choice and we're guaranteeing that choice through the decisions and the commitments and the agreements we reach today. This was echoed by Tehan, who told the parliament that the choice and affordability fund is to ensure right across Australia that parents have the ability to have choice and affordable choice, whether they're in an inner city area or whether they're in a rural or remote area, we want to ensure that that choice is there. These views reflect those of the Catholic Church. In his statement on the peace deal with the Morrison government, Archbishop Anthony Fisher said, educational need cannot be limited to financial need. Every child needs a quality education and there is a need for every parent to have a real choice in education including the option of a faith-based school. 
The previous funding arrangements put in jeopardy the future of low-fee, low-expenditure, faith-based schools. The Catholic Church view of need was premised on the availability of choice of low-fee schools, as the NCEC stated. They stated, need not only relates to wealth, every child needs a quality education and parents need a real affordable choice, including the option of faith-based school. The community therefore needs a public school system and a parallel low-fee alternative across Australia if these needs are to be satisfied. School choice has always been a cover for more funding for private schools. As many research studies around the world and in Australia have shown, school choice is a policy that promotes social segregation in schools and exacerbates inequality in education. For example, an OECD study concluded, in the last 25 years, more than two-thirds of OECD countries have increased school choice opportunities for parents. The empirical evidence reviewed here reveals that providing full parental school choice results in further student segregation between schools by ability, socioeconomic and ethnic background, and in greater inequities across education systems. So Australia's uh, following countries like Chile, Pinochet's Chile and so on. So this is all really part and parcel of the ideology of the 80s, the new right ideology. In America at the moment, it's, um, it's being questioned. It's, things are very interesting. The world's a very interesting place. Because yes. 10 years after the collapse of their economic system in 2008, in America at least, and in some other countries as well, they are coming to terms with the fact that uh, the, the 1980s um, new right ideology is bankrupt. It's causing more trouble than it's worth. But we've had a little bit of a break now. We'll come back perhaps for some more of Trevor Cobalt. This is Hugo Race, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Subscribe now. Well, you're welcome back to the Dogs Program, listeners. And uh, we've been talking about Trevor Kobold's a very interesting article about how Morrison has put the skids under the Gonski needs policy. The uh, coalition government have always done this. They don't want to deal with needs. They don't want to deal with disadvantaged children. They want to deal with the people who vote for them, the uh, middle-class aspirationals or the very wealthy, certainly the very wealthy. But uh, Sorrel is going to tell us a little bit more about what Trevor Cobalt has to say. Over to you, Sorrel. All right. Thank you very much, Jean. And thank you to Madeline for reading the first half of this article. So Trevor Cobalt continues... Another OECD report also found that the school choice policies have increased social and academic segregation between schools, which, in turn, reduced equity in education. It increases social segregation of students as choice is mostly used by middle class and wealthy families. Empirical results in this volume suggest that weakening the link between place of residence and school allocation is related to a higher level of school segregation by social status. 
some resilient disadvantaged students may have access to schools that would otherwise be inaccessible if a strict residence-based policy were applied. But that in itself does not offset the social sorting effects that result when it is mostly middle or upper class families that take advantage of school choice policies. Furthermore, empirical evidence from systems within countries or statewide school choice policies, such as Chile, New Zealand, Sweden, and the United States, suggests that providing more opportunities may increase school stratification based on students' ability, socioeconomic status, and ethnicity. Remarkably, the Prime Minister claimed that the new funding method would make the education system fairer and more equitable. It is incomprehensible how he could consider such a massive increase for private schools and no equivalent increase for state schools will make the education system fairer. As former Minister for Education in New South Wales, Adrian Piccoli said, there is nothing equitable or fair about that at all. And it is contrary to the very concept of needs-based funding. This does nothing for kids who need the funding the most. Morrison's argument that the new funding will make the system fairer has Orwellian overtones. As Peter Goss of the Grattan Institute commented, all schools are equal, but some are more equal than others. Morrison's claims are not supported by the research evidence. A study published by the US National Bureau of Economic Research shows that school choice exacerbates inequality without improving opportunities for the most disadvantaged students. This was also confirmed by the OECD report, which said that there is a widespread evidence that social segregation in schools impacts on the academic performance of its students. This evidence suggests that sorting students into schools by ability or by social status may adversely affect both the efficiency and the equity of the school system. Social and academic segregation in schools may create additional barriers for success for disadvantaged children and reduce equity in education. Moreover, school, stratif school stratification may also have long-term negative consequences for social mobility. Disadvantaged students may develop biased educations and career aspirations because of the absence of inspiring role models that are usually found in schools with a greater social mix. More generally, social stratification among schools may threaten social cohesion as children are not accustomed to social or ethnic diversity. The report found added evidence of these effects from the PISA 2015. It found that countries where schools were more socially segregated also had less equitable education systems. Increasing social segregation among schools tends to widen the achievement gap between disadvantaged and advantaged students. In 2015, countries where the schools were less socially diverse also had less equitable education systems. Empirical evidence suggests that social segregation across schools is negatively correlated with equity in education. Yes, so there you are. That's what we've been saying all along. And, of course, what we've found in the days of the pandemic is that those countries that have got huge numbers of people in poverty 
are the ones who are um, suffering the greatest number of um, COVID cases. And uh, this is very dangerous, in fact, for the whole world. We might think that we're safer here in Australia, but once the borders open, well, the borders aren't going to open, are they? Uh, so there, there are long-term implications for levels of inequality in our society. 3CR is running a station appeal. We're asking you, the listener, to donate to keep the station going. 3CR relies on the support of our listeners, but we know that many of you are doing it hard. So if you can't, we get it. But if you can, head to 3cr.org.au to make your tax-deductible donation to the 3CR station appeal. Welcome back to the DOGS program. We're talking about reviews of teachers who shouldn't be reviewed. They should be lauded and they should be paid the very highest of high salaries for what the work they've done during the pandemic, particularly our public school teachers. But that's not what Mr Tudge, the Federal Minister for Education, is doing. Um, he thinks that perhaps we should be looking at getting better teachers um, and Mr Bonner, Chris Bonner, on Pearls and Irritations, a blog of John Menadieu, has written a very interesting article, Tudge on the Bludge, New Education Minister Offers Nothing New. Over to you, Oliver. Mr Bonner writes, with few exceptions, federal education ministers have followed a well-worn path of school reform it looks easy, resonates well, but rarely delivers, and ignores entrenched problems. Alan Tudge fits neatly into this mould. Tudge has launched a review of initial teacher education, something which will apparently arrest declining academic standards. It won't be taxing. It can look busy for the next few years, grab headlines with such initi- initiatives, engage in a bit of cultural warfare, and will be long gone before anyone realises it all didn't amount to much. It's a well-travelled path. Both sides of politics have produced ardent school reformers. As Education Minister, Julia Gillard famously paraded a long-gone Chancellor of New York City schools, whose reforms were even challenged at the time. Her initiatives were aimed, amongst other things, at beating Shanghai by 2025. Mm. Now just a few years away, it won't happen. In 2014, Christopher Pine sent Dr Kevin Donnelly and Professor Ken Wiltshire off to review the Australian curriculum. It will be hard to find many educators who can recall anything it achieved. Apparently, Tudra's review of teacher training is aimed to return Australia to the top performing group of nations by 2030. All these reformers act out Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Back in 2014, academic Stefan Dinham noted that Australia has on average had one review of teacher education every year for the past 30 years. Each inquiry reaches much the same conclusions and makes much the same recommendations, yet little changes. They keep at it. School reformers are fixated on teachers and schools, ignoring anything else, including their own antics, that impact on what schools do and manage to achieve. They choose their targets, but teacher bashing is getting harder. Given the commendable way teachers worked with parents to help children through the pandemic, 
There are also many teachers and they all vote, but it's best to blame those who train them instead. There are other concerns about Tudge's proposed review. As the SMH reported, Michelle Simmons, president of the Australian Council of Deans of Education, pointed to its limited reach. The title alone of Julia Sunderman and Jordana Hunt's published response is instructive. Yes, Minister, you can entice our best and brightest into teaching. You will have to pay them more. University of Sydney academic Rachel Wilson said reviewing teacher education in isolation was not enough and the whole of system review was needed. Tinkering isn't going to fix it. We need a broader review and bolder reforms to the structures of the schooling system. We need a cross-party coalition and 10-year plan to address the issues we are facing. Wilson's response goes to the heart of the problem. She is a co-writer of the Gonski Institute for Education Structural, Education Structural Failure, Why Australia Keeps Falling Short of Its Educational Goals. It looks at our schooling track record to clearly state where we are and why, and what we must do to improve. Its purpose is not to disparage school-based reform. It will always be needed, including improving teacher learning. But the re reality is that such initiatives are orphans, standing alone without the support needed to succeed. Too many school reforms have been, and are still, detached from the wider problems that contribute to the deficiency they alone purport to address. The other problem is that the school reformers themselves often have a blinkered vision created by their own preconceptions and life experiences. Alan Tudge previously nailed his preferred school colours to the masthead with his response to the Gonski Review. As Lindsay Connors pointed out, Tudge lamented that reforms to improve equity in schools funding could compel non-government schools to take all, certain cohorts of students or lose school funding. Oh, isn't that interesting? Mm. Mm. He was worried that private schools might have to look after a few disadvantaged students and that might affect uh, their marketability. Mm. It would have been a tragedy. Perhaps he has managed to avoid those cohorts in his working life with Boston Consulting or as PA to one-time education minister, Brendan Nelson. Well, that was a very interesting article, wasn't it? Uh, Chris Bonner's usually got something interesting to say as an ex-principal of a public school, a comprehensive high school. He's got a long memory too. I think these people in Canberra uh, seem to forget that a lot of voters, some of us have been around for many decades now and we do have memories and there's a lot of teachers and ex-teachers who've got long memories as well and they are voters. But um, that's enough of our 888, number 888 press release for today. We'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back with some more interesting material. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR.
Yes, well, uh, we're finished with um, teacher training, more or less. But Diana Ravitch's blog had a very interesting article which she thought should be reproduced. And we think it should be reproduced on our radio program too because it shows you how, how privatisation is so often on the agenda of people who talk about reforming our education system. But uh, Dale is going to tell us about this very interesting article. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, the article is entitled, How Does Forbes Select Its 30 Under 30 Who Are Considered Leaders in Education? This is a fascinating paper published in the peer-reviewed Education Policy Analysis and Archives in 2018. It explores the question of how Forbes magazines selects the edupreneurs. That word just makes me sick. Edupreneurs, that is people who... Who make a business out of education. How Forbes magazine selects the edupreneurs uh, who are recognised as education leaders. It's quite a plum to receive this recognition as it supposedly confers recognition on these young people who are the best hope for revolutionising and reforming education. Uh, this recognition sets them apart as, quote, experts despite their youth and meagre experience. Are these the high achievers that Mr Tudge is trying to get into teacher education, I wonder? I think it is actually relevant to what we've been talking about. Absolutely. The authors are T. Jamison Brewer, Nicholas D. Hartlip and Ian M. Scott. They see this selection process as a means of advancing privatisation and the market orientation of education, given the composition of the judges and the winners. The marketisation of public education in the era of neoliberalism elevates buzzwords like innovation, investments, return on investments and technology integration. Moreover, within the context of education and schooling, the professional status of educators is challenged in an effort to exalt the logic and norms of the business class. President Trump, a businessman, appointed Betsy DeVos to be Secretary of Education, despite the fact she and her children have never attended public schools. The message the White House sent to Americans is that experience in education is not a necessary component of administrating education. Education reform has been led by a consortium of organisations and individuals who have expanded market-oriented reforms throughout schools. Those market-oriented reforms have included charter schools, school vouchers and alternative certification training for teachers. The logic, as it were, is that government-based training, organisations and control of schooling is woefully inefficient and would benefit from market competition. Finding roots in Milton Friedman, market-oriented education reformers seek to inject competition, note the business terminology, into the public sphere of education. And despite a growing body of research that suggests that charter schools underperform traditional public schools and exacerbate segregation and other research raising concerns over alternative certification programs like Teach for America, these reforms continue to expand and these reforms are not conducted within a vacuum. The disproportionate number of TFA alumni who have received the under 30 and the shared language of neoliberal education reform, highlight the common understandings and aims of market-oriented reformers. 
Given Forbes' ideological commitment to promoting business-oriented reforms in education, the Under 30 Award itself, using the language of industry, highlights the role that neoliberalism continues to play across education reforms. Grounded in the assumption that government is both too ineffective and inefficient to oversee schools, neoliberalism asserts a solution of free market competition and individualisation. As explicated in our findings, the individuals who received the under-30s not only lacked degrees in education, but the judges of the award and the majority of the awardees have direct connections to organisations that operate along an ideological commitment to competition, deregulation and privatisation, often for profit. In their discussion of alliances and divisions within the policy landscape, Debray, Pello, Lubyansky and Scott outlined how various types of ideological groups influence policy outcomes. If we were to apply social closure theory to under 30, we might ask ourselves, who are the judges and who are the recipients? The four judges for the 2017 competition were, one, Stacey Childress, the CEO of New Schools Venture Fund. Two, Arnie Duncan, the managing partner of Emerson Collective. Three, Wendy Kopp, the co-founder of Teach for America and Teach for All. And four, Marcus Knoll, the founder of Heart of Men Ventures and a TFA alum. So these are all entrepreneurs themselves. They're wanting to make money, big money out of insecure parents and charter schools and privatisation of public education in in America. And the people to whom they award, they give this award, are people who further that ideology. Uh, We might also ask who were the recipients of the award. If the award recipients were found to be mostly from the organisations that were connected to the judges, then we might be able to discern whether social closure is is occurring. By nominating and awarding under 30 to people like themselves, the judges effectively act as gatekeepers to the resources and benefits that come to those who receive such a designation. Those benefits are national recognition, marketing of the individual and the individual's organisation or business by Forbes, and networking connections made during Under 30 Summit, a multi-day event of speeches and networking. Given that the purpose of Under 30 is to identify and celebrate those who are leading in their industry, receiving the Under 30 designation stands to help recipients expand their business ventures. Raymond Murphy points out that social closure is really about monopolisation of opportunities. What this means is social closure and closed networks lead to protecting power and maintaining the same messages and signal ideologies. And isn't this what we found two weeks ago? It was happening in Australia with the wealthy public schools and our politicians. We were amazed at how the networks all fell out in the Seacom article in the um, Saturday Review. Fascinating stuff. So America and Australia are not unlike here. Uh, Within the realm of the under-30 network, these ideologies are ones that elevate ideologies of pro-privatisation and pro-marketisation of schools and education. These ideologies support the deprofessionalisation of teacher preparation. The manifestation of social closure increases and 
is an outcome of echo chamber, whereby members of the closed network not only engage in self-congratulations, but rely on the growing network information and resources to further its shared ideology. Social closure is not a new area of study. It's been documented to exist in higher education award systems. However, the present study can contributes new knowledge to how social closure can lead to moving forward policies that are pro-market and pro-privatisation and that lead to bolstering edupreneurship. The authors reviewed the, the resumes of five years recipients of the 30 Under 30 Award. Few of them had studied education. Only four out of 192 Under 30 recipients over the last five years have had an undergraduate degree that focuses on education, while 23 have master's degrees in some field connected to education, many of them completed that training through partnerships between universities and Teach for America, TFA, which has some control over the courses their core members take. Wendy Kopp, the founder of TFA, and Stacey Childress, the CS CEO of New Schools Venture Fund, have both served as judges for the majority of the years that the Under 30 Award has included the education industry. Additionally, other judges alongside Copper Children have direct, direct ties to individuals and organisations being recognised through the award. It is clear from our analysis that the majority of the recipients of the award have very close connections to the judges and their organisations. So this is very interesting, isn't it? You've got um, a, a system, they call it social closure, um, which is a very interesting concept for closed networks uh, in both um, business, education business, and our politics, I would imagine, in America. And with our private school system, which is so so generously funded by our government, um, we have the same. Let's talk about it, our networks as socially closed. They're closed networks uh, because the public school people have not been able to get in to get some of the goodies, have they? They've been frozen out, yes. This creates a process, a feedback loop that becomes reciprocal. Yes. Well, in the end, of course, uh, the people who are in this network uh, think that they are, um, they are, that nobody can touch them until, of course, one of them breaks ranks like Brittany Higgins did. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Well, in short, the 30 Under 30 competition is an echo chamber where the judges select members of their own small or similar organisations and complete a closed circle. The judges use their influence to enhance their power and promote their protégés. In normal terms, this would be considered a conflict of interest. Many thanks, uh, Dale. It was a, a pretty heavy article, that, but a very interesting one. It analyses how power works in closed shops in uh, America and we can see how it also occurs in Australia. But we've got the good news story, our great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Yeah.
Maddie, which school is it? Our great state school of this week is Broadford Secondary College. And a local little bird has informed us that the parents of children at the very wealthy Assumption College in Kilmore are somewhat disillusioned and now sending their children to Broadford Secondary College. So we thought we would find out about this school. Uh, The following information is available. This is a moderately sized co-educational secondary school in a country lifestyle, like urban setting. The total enrolment at this school is 726 with 386 boys and 340 girls. There are full-time and part-time teaching staff and full-time and part-time non-teaching staff. 4% speak a language other than English, and there are 4%, uh, which is 29 students. Only 5% of students, however, in the top socioeconomic quartile, and 47% in the middle class quartiles. There are 48% in the lowest quartile. So there are a fair number of disadvantaged children in this school. It's not surprising then that the Index of Community Socioeducational Advance, which is the ICSIA value of this public school, is only 968, which is well below the average of 1,000. However, NAPLAN results are just fine. The children in this school are above average in writing, but a bit below in spelling. 54 students obtained a secondary school certificate. And 30% of the students from 2020 have enrolled at universities in 2021. Uh, 22% have enrolled in TAFE and 26% have um, obtained employment. Regarding their finances, the fees, charges and parent contributions were $166,821. But other private income for this school in 2020 was $207,214. That's the local businesses, I would think. Mm, I would say so. This school has wide support and a good reputation in its local community. The total income was $9,647,000 and the total capital expenditure was $262,000, which is considerably less than McKinnon High, which we were looking at last week. This means that it costs $13,000 per student per annum to educate a child at Broadford Secondary College, only $400 more than it costs at the well-heeled McKinnon Secondary College, but considerably less than it costs at most wealthy private schools. And for this school, with 48% of its children in the lowest 25% socioeconomic quartile, an obviously disadvantaged school, this is also less than the suggested resource standard of $14,000. This is a public school patronised by local country and lifestyle families with an eye to good educational value. No wonder families in the surrounding country towns are looking at it for their children. Congratulations to Broadford Secondary College. Good on you. Well, our time has run out, but if you want to find out more about our our press release from today, go to our website at www.adogs.info and we'll be back with an interesting program again next week. Bye for now. Joe 
was I but Joel, here ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you'll find your hill It's there you'll find I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.